Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show bringing you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine. Today's show topic is chelation therapy, what we know and what we expect to learn from the TAC-2 clinical trial. Our guest today is Dr. Gervasio Lamas, MD. He is the Chairman of Medicine and Chief of Columbia University Division of Cardiology at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami, Florida. He received his BA in Biochemical Sciences from Harvard and his MD from New York University. He completed his internship, residency, and cardiology training at Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. And I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Lamas almost six years ago in May of 2013 on the TACT-1 trial, or the trial to assess chelation therapy published in JAMA 2013. And I happened to hear him speak a month or so ago on what's happening with TAC-2 and the history of TAC-1 trials. So welcome, Dr. Lamas. Thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thank you very, very much. It's really a pleasure to be here with you again. It really reminds me, Kirk, how quickly time passes. When you gave the, his, the historical review of the TACT-1 trial, I realized how long it took. And I was just I know. I, well, I, I mean, I realized I've been working on this darn thing for 20 years. That's, that's wild. That's absolutely wild. So, so the question would be, why would a traditionally trained cardiologist spend so much of his professional career on a, quote, alternative therapy such as chelation therapy? Well, Kirk, I would say that I was asking myself that same question in the bathroom mirror this morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> but on a more serious note, I've always questioned my sort of my uh, clinical and scientific reflexes to see if they are based on fact or based on bias. And that's been the, the course of my involvement in clinical trials. Way back when, my first clinical trial had to do with cardiac pacemakers and why we were implanting the most expensive pacemakers all the time. That led to a clinical trial that, with very interesting results, that affected clinical practice. And, you know, it's completely tangential to this. But it isn't tangential in the sense that in 1999, in August, a gentleman came into my office asking about chelation therapy, and I told him it was nonsense, that it was quackery, dangerous, and certainly expensive, and he should just take an aspirin, a statin, and come back and see me, and I would check his cholesterol. And, you know, I don't usually talk that way to, be, to people, and I decided that it took a couple of days. And I said, okay, that's, that was an interesting conversation. Let's see if I was right. So I started looking into the what were the published scientific data on chelation. And it was split straight down the middle. On the one hand, there were a number of case reports. Case reports are really individual patients that get published. And case series or groups of individual patients that, that are really a clinician's experience saying all sorts of good things about chelation therapy. Relieved angina, chest pains due to narrow coronary arteries. It helped with feet and legs that didn't have enough circulation due to diabetes or smoking or whatever. That was on one side. On the other side were three or four very small studies done by conventional cardiologists like myself. Each study was flawed in some important way, uh, saying this stuff doesn't work. And so... You know, when you look at the studies, 
they were small enough so that you could not actually exclude a benefit that you had actually missed because the numbers were so small. And then at that point, I called some colleagues of mine in the National Institutes of Health, and I said, listen, you know, this chelation stuff has been around forever, and I think that we can address it now with clinical trials methodology, which is now modern, and it's really a well-developed science. Would you like to see a clinical trial? And in truth, what I also said was, I think that it'll probably be negative and we can put this away once and for all. So you roll the clock forward. Three years after that, I receive a $30 million grant to do TACT-1. And now you roll the clock forward 10 years. And in 2014, and 2012, I'm sorry, we are become unblinded. The study was a blinded trial, 1,708 patients. We had never seen the results, the investigators. We gave 55,222 infusions. Our statisticians were at Duke. Our clinical events were judged whether they were real or not real at Harvard. I made sure that I had the best clinical events committee, which was at Harvard, and the best statisticians, biostatisticians, which were at Duke, still the case, as part of the study so that it could not be, the results couldn't be questioned. We opened the book, and there were about five of us who were in the leadership of the investigators in a long table at Duke. The statisticians are looking at us, and they all know because they haven't been blinded. We opened the book, and by God, the darn thing is positive. What was it positive for? Well, we were able to reduce a combined clinical endpoint, which means either death, heart attack, stroke, bypasses or angioplasties or hospitalizations for unstable angina. It was a combined endpoint. And that was in all comers with a heart attack. So that's a spectacular result. If this stuff had been a statin, you know, you would have to be calling me, I don't know, in, uh, in Paris. And, you know, and I'd be sipping champagne. But that's not the way it is. This drug is was developed in 1937, EDTA. It lost its patent sometime in the 60s. And the IND, that is the FDA license in a way, to use it in research is under my name. I'm no Pfizer. I'm no Gilead. It's just me being funded by our taxpayer money, by real scientists who saw that this needed to be addressed. And so we presented the results, and the cardiologists were much preferred to believe their bias, their anti-chelation bias, than the data that they saw on a screen developed by and analyzed by the leading biostatistician of the era. And to me, an extraordinary, extraordinary discovery, and truly disappointment. So we can separate it out. This was the TACT-1 trial, correct? That's TACT-1. And these yeah. people had myocardial infarctions or heart attacks. They had a previous heart attack, and they were at least 50 years of age, and they had reasonably good kidneys. Not perfect kidneys, but reasonably good. And they got approximately 40 of these EDTA infusions. Yeah, 40 EDTA infusions. The EDTA infusions were really what was mostly going on in the community. That's the mix that we use. So it also had vitamin C in it, some B vitamins, and a couple of other things. Right. Yeah, you can't really fully sort of uh, gloss over the potential benefit of the intravenous vitamin C. 
Right. I mean, well, I, I just look at all the nutrients. You got you had B6, B12, folate, lower homocysteine. You've got, I mean, you could go on and on about what might individuals might do. But once that study was positive, you realized that the mix that we used was crystallized. We could not change one single thing if we were going to test it again. So we noticed that in patients who had diabetes, intact one, a third of the patients had diabetes. So 633 patients were diabetic. And in those patients, the effect of the EDTA chelation was absolutely spectacular. I mean spectacular. Uh, specifically, it reduced the risk of this combined cardiovascular endpoint, that is, any bad thing that can happen to your heart because your coronaries are narrowed, by over 40%, by 41%. I mean, that's extraordinary. It reduced the risk of death from all causes over five years by 43%. It reduced the risk of another heart attack. These are diabetics who've had a heart attack. Reduce the risk for another heart attack by 50%. Well, let me ask you this real quick. If you would have taken those same subjects and given them traditional statin drugs, would this be equal to that or, or was the EDTA better or worse or what would it have been? In, in reality, 83% of our patients were taking statins and there was no reduction of effect with or without statins. So it's a different mechanism. Now, if you said what does on the average from the old statin studies where you looked at taking a statin versus taking a placebo drug, um, this is the effect size is much greater with the chelation, much greater. How do you think chelation works? And again, I have to say, this is a hypothesis, and there are really two or three hypotheses. When we had these results, I can tell you that we did some fast thinking, because the study, the darn study was supposed to be negative as far as I was concerned. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So then I'm sitting there and saying, okay, now now what? But then you ask yourself, what does EDTA do? Well, EDTA is a chelator, and it chelates out with great avidity positive ions that are particularly have two positive charges. And what are those? Well, a lot of the toxic metals that are part of our environment, like lead and cadmium in particular, are plus two. And if I give you an infusion of EDTA and then and measure before and after how much lead your body is excreting in the urine, you'll find that after the EDTA, you're excreting about three to 4,000% more. So it just sucks that stuff out of you and puts it in the urine where it is safely excreted, completely harmlessly. May I ask you a question? Because I... I have this phenomenon all the time. So we do chelation in our practice, and we do before and after on just some complicated patients. We'll do a, a urine for heavy metals, and then there'll be nothing. Yeah. And then we'll do our chelation, and a bunch of metal yeah. will come out. So yeah. regular medicine doesn't know what to do with that. And so these metals stay in soft tissue or the heart or the brain or the nervous system or the bone? Is, is that the, your belief or what? Lead as a plus two tends to run with calcium. So it initially goes into red blood cells. After the red blood cells have their sort of one month life lifespan and then they get chewed up, then it jumps into bone. And in bone, it has a half-life of 30 years. A half-life means that it would take 30 years to kick out half of the lead that you have in your bones if you were taking no additional lead in the meantime, which is impossible. Cadmium is actually stored 
in soft tissues much more. About 50% of your cadmium is stored in your kidneys. And uh, the rest is liver, lungs, neural tissue. It's basically the, the soft organs that are storing cadmium. Where would the effect be for vascular disease then? Where, where don't you want it, the metals? Well, you don't want them in your body. I mean, it's as if I asked you, you know, okay, I have a little bit of cyanide here. How much would you want to take? Well, you know, I don't know. I think any sane person would say none. And just to give you an example for lead, lead uh, slowly leaches out of bone. And if you check the blood lead level of most older people, you'll find lead level of one or two micrograms per deciliter. And according to the EPA, this is okay. On the other hand, Lead is very vasculotoxic. It poisons the endothelium, the lining of arteries. It replaces calcium in important intracellular reactions. It really doesn't work as calcium. It just gums up the work. It is an oxidant stressor. Diabetics in particular live at a high heightened oxidative stress. Help in the production of oxygen-free radicals, which are bad news, on and on and on. And it goes on like that for pretty much all of the toxic metals. They all have this hyperoxidative state as kind of the underlying theme. And then each one has its own idiosyncratic series of cellular mechanisms of poisons. Lead and cadmium, interestingly, and relatively recently, have been found to affect acetylation of histone. Histones are the proteins that unspool DNA or spool it back up so that these may actually, these two metals may actually have a role in kind of gumming up how your DNA is transcribed. Uh, so at even that very basic level, these metals should be out of your body. Well, you're, you're opening up a, another can of a worm, so to speak, uh, because I know. I mean, if you do, so if you don't do a test, you don't see it. But I do these all the time. And I can tell you that it's very seldom that I see a negative challenge test that doesn't have a significant amount of, of lead or cadmium. No, no, that's right. We all have it. These are ubiquitous. We all have been exposed, and we have all sucked it up into our bodies. Uh, I just gave her a grand rounds lecture at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is the major teaching hospital of Harvard Medical School. And the title was, When Treatment of the Elephant in the Room became a black swan event. The elephant in the room is that we are, all of us, carrying toxic metals that may be causing disease and that we as physicians have put on blinders and are not looking at it and we don't think about it and we don't know how much disease is being caused by these. Right, well here's, I mean, this is kind of, I don't want to get off on too much of the topic, but you're, the can of worms that beings open is, because if you see these all the time, if you measure them, then what do you do with them? Put everybody on chelation therapy on the planet? Well, you know, I, I actually, I, I agree with you in the sense that this is the time to say, oh my God, no, let's not think about that. But I do think that we need to be scientifically objective and it's really almost the same way that in the 50s, it was actually very hard to prove that cigarette smoking caused lung cancer and the reason and heart attacks. And the reason was that everybody smoked. When men came back from the Second World War and then the Korean War, 
they all smoked. And so it was darn hard to prove that cigarette smoking was causing cancer. And this has been, I think, one of the problems is that we have slowly been poisoning the environment. We end up sucking up all the lead and cadmium and a bunch of other metals. I mean, you're, you're doing this on a da daily basis. You know that lead and cadmium are just two of an average of somewhere between five and ten metals that people will put out in their urine when provoked. And I think that there is human disease that can be ascribed to this or that is made worse by this. On the other hand, you know, science is done by bits and pieces and by, you know, steps and occasionally jumps. So my bit and piece is to look at chelation for cardiovascular disease. And that's where I went to the FDA in 2014. And in 2014, I sat in front of all of the sort of the top guys in cardiovascular at, at FDA, presented the results of TACT-1 with the request that it be approved for cardiovascular disease. And they said, look, your study was positive. The drug is safe. However, it's really only one study because none of the other studies truly mattered. They were so small and uh, dubious. It's only one study. Usually when somebody comes up with only one study, it doesn't get approved. And all that people will remember is that chelation was shot down again. So do it again. Do it in the diabetic patients. And they're the ones that have the biggest effect size. And if it's positive, then you come back and it'll be much smoother sailing. And the truth is that both scientifically and politically, they were right. So let me ask you this. So now I'm getting the reason. I was trying to understand in my mind the difference between TACT-1 and TACT-2. And so it's going to take diabetics who were the best responders, so to speak. And you're doing it to kind of reprove so people will pay attention. Is that kind of correct? Exactly. And because, you know, in science, science is not like flipping a coin. Right? Right. In science, if if you flip a coin, it should always come out ahead if you're correct. Right? So this experiment should come out positive. I hope. <laughs> what is the difference as far as the, the, the amount of people in the study or the duration? Is there anything different? Yeah. So because we had a larger effect size and because diabetics have more heart attacks and stuff than non-diabetic, we don't have to enroll as many patients. So we're enrolling 1,200 patients and we will follow them a little bit less time. We're still giving 40 infusions. At the present time, we have just under 700 patients. We have 660-odd patients. So we're, we're, almost, we're almost at 700 patients. So, you know, it's happening. I mean, the study's happening. We're moving forward. The quality is good. My centers are excellent. And, and we'll get an answer in a couple of years. Are people, is there a, um, an oral vitamin regimen wing or? Yes, there is. Because we had, you know, in the, in the first study, when I did my due diligence, remember, I'm a conventional cardiologist. I used to be a catheterizer. I used to put in pacemakers. I'm a clinical cardiologist now. I had no idea what a chelation doctor does. I mean, none, zero. So I went to our uh, local expert chelation physician, who is uh, Martin Dayton, who's still in practice near where I work, and asked him, well, what, what do you do? And Martin referred me to Ted Rosema's little booklet on protocols in chelation therapy. And so I understood what was in, in the IV mix, but it also became very evident that all patients receiving chelation were receiving high-dose 
doses of oral antioxidant and nutrient vitamins. I mean, very high doses. And so we designed a vitamin mixture. I collected, I you know, we had a co- several conference calls with the vitamin expert of the alternative medicine community. And the question was, we are going to do a study on chelation therapy and what kind of vitamins should patients be taking? So we came up with a complex mix. All of this is published. And then, so half of the patients were assigned to the vitamins and half to placebo. Much to our surprise, there seems to be a little bit of an effect, sort of an 11% reduction in events in the active vitamin group intact one that was not statistically significant. So you would say, okay, that's the same as no effect. Well, that's not quite the same. It just means that we were not, we didn't have enough patients or enough statistical power in the jargon that is used to be able to show a difference. What's actually really interesting about this, and this is also published, is that there was only one subgroup that appeared to benefit the most from vitamins. And those were the patients who were not taking statins. You remember I mentioned 27% were not taking statins? That 83% of TACT1 was taking statins? Well, in those 27%, that were not taking statins, there was a huge benefit of vitamin therapy. And I just don't know what to make of that. You know, I don't have a mechanism, know as much about vitamins as your typical cardiologist down the street, which is either nil or a negative number. And But we're repeating it because if this turns out, if it happens again, then, boy, we really have to run with it. Well, I can think of all kinds of ways to go, but, I, you know, it'll open up a can of worms, I guess is what it'll say. But it'll be a good can of worms. Well, I mean, you know, worms, <laughs> worms, if you use them as bait, they will lead you to fish. <laughs> so, you know, if I ask 10 cardiologists what chelation does, they, a lot of times they'll say it's going to wreck kidney function and have side effects. Nothing has changed. The only thing that has changed, I would say that some of the most intellectually curious cardiologists now admit to themselves during quiet moments of thought that there might be something here. I was very gratified when I lectured at the Brigham. And and I tell you, at the Brigham, it's a tough audience. These are individuals that are the leaders in cardiology. The person who invited me, who is a friend of mine, was just given the gold medal for career accomplishment by the European Society of Cardiology. These are individuals who have brought cardiology to where it is now. And the questions were friendly questions asking for more information. There was no hostility, no disbelief, no patronizing. It was an incredibly positive experience. And this is really what happens when you present this to an unbiased scientist. They look at it, they look and and they see that these event curves, these Kaplan-Meier curves are diverging. I also showed them some pictures of patients with gangrene that I've treated and been able to resolve the gangrene. And, you know, they were just speechless, interested, and they want to hear more. However, if you look for conventionally trained cardiologists who will practice chelation or admit that it has value and say, yeah, you know, this patient probably would do good 
with chelation and maybe send them to another chelation practitioner, good luck finding them. I mean, I think you're talking to one of the few. So do you actually do chelation? Mount Sinai is the only hospital that I know of in the United States where chelation has gone through the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee and can be prescribed. Now, it doesn't get prescribed. Every once in a blue moon, if I have a patient who doesn't want to join one of our studies, is clearly eligible and says, but look, you know, I don't want to take a chance of being on placebo, I'll pay for it, then, yeah, they can get it done at Mount Sinai. These are unusual cases. I'm not out there as a chelation clinician. I really am a scientist trying to develop a new treatment for what I think is an unrecognized cardiovascular risk factor. You know, kind of like cholesterol before the Framingham study. They didn't know that cholesterol was associated with coronary disease. It took the Framingham study to say, hey, these people with a cholesterol of 300, they surely have a lot of heart attacks. So in a perfect world, if if everything was open and you felt good about doing this, would you put people on both the statin and chelation therapy if you were just treating to be helping the patient in the maximum that you could? Absolutely. There's no interaction and they both have clinical trial evidence of benefit. All right. A little off the topic, but do you have a favorite diet pattern? I'm a plant-based guy. Um, What's your favorite diet to put people on for vascular disease? You know, Kirk, I would say that none of my patients follow my dietary advice. So if you start with that and then you say, okay, what's the most important thing about diet? I would say the most important thing is to please, please, please don't be obese. And if you're obese, be less obese. And if you're less obese, get to just overweight. So I ask them to pick around and see what they, what kind of diet do they think they can do? You know, something as prosaic as Weight Watchers. I just want less weight because fat is toxic. Once they're able to do that, then yes, a plant-based diet, absolutely. Maybe a Mediterranean diet, but I find trying to change people's uh, dietary habits really incompatible with sort of medicine as we are now practicing it in the era of electronic health records, 15-minute visits, that kind of stuff. It's, we're, we're really missing both. I don't want to get too far off the, uh, the thought frame here, but in that conference that we were at, that I heard you speak again, International Conference for, I think, Integrative Medicine. One of the uh, flashpoints, so to speak, was that the cholesterol hypothesis wasn't valid or per se, but more of an infectious process to atherosclerosis. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have not seen really convincing evidence that it's infectious. I think that chronic infection is bad, and like any other chronic inflammation, rheumatoid arthritis, for example, HIV, chronic infections activate sort of Uh, inflammatory cascades that are bad for endothelium and other parts of blood vessels and I think in a secondary way cause cardiovascular events but I haven't really been convinced that there are microorganisms growing in plaque that can be treated uh, with an antibiotic or an antimicrobial of some kind and lead to a reduction in cardiovascular events. So the calcification walls off what, then the little microvascular ruptures? Is that the... Um... That's where my mind is at at the present time. All right. Any closing comments you'd like to make? I really appreciate your time. No, I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity, and I hope that the individuals who hear this, you know, take out of it that there is much more than meets the eye in terms of cardiovascular risk factors. 
I, I, I think we're going to grow old together because if, if there's a tax three, then it'll be like 30 years you've been doing this. <laughs> so, well, I can tell you that I just started tax three A. Tax three A is a 50 patient study on patients with critical limb ischemia, sort of impending amputation. 30 will receive active treatment, 20 will receive placebo. Well, you know that you brought that up because in, in the olden days, you know, um, wound healing and gangrene were, you know, some of the remarkable <clears throat> pictorials that, that chelation doctors would give you. And I, yeah. I'll never forget, I had an 83-year-old lady who was diabetic and, and partially blind, and, and she had a big ulcer on her foot, and they were going to cut off her foot. And I said, I don't know. I, I said, we, if we're going to do something, we got to do chelation every day for two or three weeks and cross our fingers, and I'll be darned if it didn't save her foot. And um, Exactly. I, exactly. That, and just imagine, yeah. you're 80 years old, somebody cuts off your leg. You're dead. You're and, dead. Your life is over. You know, and we were, you know, I'm worried about people coming at us for, you know, doing this for an 83-year-old and all this kind of stuff. But I'll never forget, that was about uh, 10 years ago. So I would love to, I mean, you know, that study might turn more heads, you know, t making a gangrene foot pink again. No, I, I Kirk, I, I, I found this, you know, there's something just so sterile about the Kaplan-Meier curves. <laughs> okay. That you can, you know, you can just say, well, blah, 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 blah. You can't blah, blah a foot that has gangrene, that had gangrene six months ago, and it is still attached now without gangrene. You cannot science that away. I agree with you, and I mean, I think it helps that, you know, you're the traditional cardiologist, too, and you're doing it in a, in a setting. I mean, that even makes it more impressive to show your friends, because... yeah. I mean, it's crazy. That's how I ended my talk at the Brigham. And it was like, okay, like, now what? You know, talk to me that this is not biologically active. <laughs> you know, come on. Come just, on, you know. I could just see Malstrop. Great placebo. That yeah, I felt like placebo. the guy in the Matrix, you know, moving his hand, saying, okay, come on, come on. Come on, let me hear it. <laughs> I, I could say that's one hell of a placebo. That's all I got to say. You got the best. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Dr. Lamas. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Kirk. Anytime. And I want to thank bye you, bye. the audience, for listening to this edition of Staying Healthy Today show. Until next time, stay and be well.